From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. And this hour, we will talk about the extraordinary events of the last 24 hours, from the projected victories of the two Democrats in the Georgia Senate runoffs that would give Democrats control of the Senate, to the historic speech by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor endorsing the presidential election results as important to the future of democracy and calling it the most important speech he ever gave, to the storming of the United States Capitol by a group of Trump supporters that police categorized as a riot and Trump's former chief of staff, Reince Priebus, called domestic terrorism. So America, are we ready to reconcile? Live coverage, your calls, and three leading guests coming up. From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Hello, everyone. And let me just be honest right from the outset here. This show is originally planned as a big picture special about our polarized country and whether the Biden administration could lead Americans toward a reconciliation. The title of this episode is America, Are We Ready to Reconcile? It was originally scheduled for today because this is the day that Congress was supposed to have officially certified the presidential election and the winner, Joe Biden, says he wants to depolarize the country. We will still deal with those big picture questions, but obviously we now have to incorporate the dramatic news of the last 24 hours. Both Democrats in the Georgia Senate runoffs have now been projected as winners by the news organization data desks, including Fox News, if you're wondering. That would give Democrats control of the Senate. There was a historic speech by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor today endorsing the presidential election results as valid and denouncing the attempt by about 11 senators to delay the certification. McConnell called it the most important speech he ever gave. We will play an excerpt. And, of course, there was the storming of the United States Capitol that police categorized as a riot, that George W. Bush joined Joe Biden in calling an insurrection, President Trump's first chief of staff and former Republican Party chair, Reince Priebus, remember him, referred to participants as domestic terrorists. One woman was shot in the Capitol and later died. The Capitol building has now been declared secure. Eventually, the president was pressured by fellow Republicans into asking his supporters to go home in peace in a video that he released on Twitter, though he called them very special and repeated his false claim that he really won the election in a landslide, but it was stolen. In fact, Twitter has now banned the president for the next 12 hours. He tweeted that again after the video in text uh, and just before a 6 p.m. curfew took effect in Washington. So on the one hand, telling people to go home in peace, on the other, riling him up. So America are riling them up, I should say, of course. And America, are we ready to reconcile? Can't change the title of the show at this point. And it is still the question long term. Remember, reconcile can mean kissing and making up. And it can also mean figuring out who is accountable for what, who owes who what to make us even. And this is a call-in show. So we will give you the phone number in just a minute. But first, let me introduce our three guests for this hour, well-placed to discuss both the intense moment and the long-term future. Heidi Heitkamp 
former Democratic U.S. Senator from North Dakota, who was defeated for re-election in 2018, now a CNBC contributor, senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, and the founder of the One Country Project, an organization aimed at helping Democrats nationally reconnect with rural voters. Ross Douthat, generally conservative New York Times columnist and author of the book The Decadent Society, America Before and After the Pandemic, and Maria Inahosa, anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and author of the book Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. Ross, Maria, and I'm not sure if we still have Senator Heitkamp's line. Thank I am you. here. Oh, great. So thank you all three for joining us on what turns out to be a night that American history will never forget. Hello. Hey, Brian. Hi, Brian. Senator Heitkamp, since you served in that Capitol building as a U.S. Senator for six years, would you describe for us what members of Congress would have been going through today? Well, I think it started out with a level of irritation, um, which is they were going to go through this huge kind of display and discussion with really no no change in outcome. Everybody knew what the outcome was going to be. So I think everybody was hunkered down, just go through the process, don't, don't get too riled up, we'll, we'll, we'll get it done, just let these guys have their day in court. I thought Mitch McConnell's um, speech was really quite remarkable for Mitch, very emotional for Mitch. And I think that kind of threw me off a little bit. And when he said, you know, I don't want to hear your claim that this is some, you know, uh, uh, gesture that doesn't meaningless but uh, significant political gesture. And, and as it turns out, those words were almost prophetic because obviously starting this process and enabling this president to further advance an argument that it's not just me who thinks this election was stolen, it's all these, you know, Harvard and Yale law grads who think the election was stolen, I think added fuel to the fire. And so I think um, what, what started out to be kind of, it's going to be boring, it's going to take a long time, it's going to irritate me, but we'll get through it, turned into one of those, if I can just say, holy cow, or, you know, we use other words in the Midwest, but, you know, we, we're, we're now in a almost 9-11 kind of situation. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and so I think, I think that it's a constant reminder. I used to remind people that the Capitol Police, even though a lot of people treat them as glorified security guards, they have one of the toughest jobs in America mm. because they are protecting the most important symbol of American democracy. And today, you know, we can argue whether the Capitol Police failed, but uh, many of those guys are my friends, and I think they stood up for the democracy and they stood up for protecting, and, and no congressman or senator was hurt in this, in this uh, siege. And that's what I'm going to call it. It was a siege. And listeners, America, are we ready to reconcile is the rallying around some kind of standard of behavior by Mitch McConnell and Ryan Priebus and George W. Bush and Mike Pence, who indicated today that he would not try to unilaterally overturn the election, as the president asked him to do, some kind of turning point. What would a broader reconciliation look like, in your opinion? And I mean reconcile in both its meanings. What would it take to become, to reconcile our debts 
You know, in a racial justice sense, that question became more prevalent in the national dialogue in 2020. And separately, what would it take to reconcile with each other across all kinds of lines to stop the decades-long drift to our current polarization? Our national call-in number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-8255. Talk. Let me get to this Mitch McConnell clip right away, because the storming of the Capitol is only one of the historic things that has happened in the last 24 hours. Another is what the rioters interrupted, and as Senator Heitkamp was just referring to, the unprecedented floor debate led by at least 11 Republican senators and more than 100 Republican House members arguing to delay the ceremonial acceptance of the Electoral College vote for president and have some kind of audit for voter fraud in swing states won by Biden, even though more than 50 lawsuits on behalf of the Trump campaign were rejected by the courts, finding no fraud and no violations of constitutional election procedures. Were it not for the storming of the Capitol, the lead story on the news today probably would have been Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell leading off that debate with a stunning rebuke of President Trump. So if you were looking in vain for McConnell's bottom line with respect to Trump and Trump's destruction of democratic norms, as so many people saw it in the last four years, he finally showed where his bottom line is. Here is an excerpt from that speech, which McConnell called the most important of his long Senate career. Our duty is to govern for the public good. The United States Senate has a higher calling than an endless spiral of partisan vengeance. Congress will either override the voters, overrule them, the voters, the states, and the courts for the first time ever, or honor the people's decision. We'll either guarantee Democrats' delegitimizing efforts after 2016 become a permanent new routine for both sides, or declare that our nation deserves a lot better than this. We'll either hasten down a poisonous path where only the winners of election actually accept the results, or show we can still muster the patriotic courage that our forebears showed, not only in victory, but in defeat. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on the floor today. Surprised, folks, if you hadn't heard that earlier? Russ Douthit, surprised? Uh, no. I mean, I think it was it was always clear that McConnell's bottom line would, you know, stop short of entertaining attempts to have Congress or Mike Pence unconstitutionally um, override the results of the election. Um, I mean, I think, you know, what what has been happening at the senatorial level of the Republican Party in the last couple of weeks, as we've sort of moved towards this point, towards the certification of Joe Biden's victory, has been a kind of a game, a game of unreality, basically, in which, you know, a group of senators and obviously a larger group 
of of congressmen, congresspeople, I suppose I should say, um, have sort of you know knowingly half participated in the Trump narrative of a stolen election. And by half participated, I mean that if you look carefully at what figures like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and others have been saying, it never actually goes so far as to say, oh, the president's telling the truth and the election was stolen. It's always this sort of circular reasoning of, well, a lot of people are concerned about this, so we have to take their concerns seriously. So we have to have, you know, a commission. or something, right? Um, And all of this is offered with the complete understanding that um, not just Nancy Pelosi and Democrats in the House, not just, you know, the Supreme Court, if it ever came to that, but the leadership of the Republican Party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, most of all, won't actually let it come to that point. So it seems like it has seemed like a cost-free move, um, this sort of half-pander by ambitious Republicans to Trump's narrative. And, you know, I mean, what what can you say after today, except it doesn't seem so cost-free anymore. Um, and we're, we're doing this, you know, we're doing this show as the Senate is um, has, has reconvened. And so we don't know, as I'm speaking this moment, how many of those Republicans will still object. Several of them have already backed off. Um, which, again, tells you what you need to know about the sincerity of the original objection, right? right? Like, if you really thought the election was stolen, then a riot would not change your perspective. But well, if you let me jump in because we have to take a one-minute minute break. Then we'll continue, and listeners will start, including your phone calls. Stay with us. It's America. Are we ready? I'm Brian Lehrer with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp, New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, and Latino USA host Maria Inahosa. And your calls on the extraordinary events of the last day at 845, uh, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Maria Inahosa, what did we see today at the Capitol in the context of American history as you see it? And what did we see yesterday in the runoff election in Georgia? Because that would be the lead story right now under almost any other circumstances. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy 24 hours, right, Brian? I mean, I, I went to sleep early last night and I really was – I was just convinced that that, uh, that there was a very good possibility that that would not happen, that the Democrats would not, uh, in fact, sweep. Uh, and, and I immediately posted on Twitter, I was like, look, I'm not happy for a particular party or candidate, but I am happy to see that voters are kind of peeling through the lies and the racism. Um, and so that is extraordinary. I have, you know, in terms of the incoming Biden administration, well, they're going to have to act and act pretty decisively now more than ever. So enough of this kind of wiffle waffle, oh, we can't do, we can't, we, we you know, we have to wait you know, this whole notion of, of, of getting along, I mean, really, Brian, as an immigrant to this country, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've lived through this. I've reported on this. Um, you know, I think the first time I remember seeing these images was as a kid watching uh, La Moneda in Santiago, Chile, September 11th, 1973, with U.S. CIA support, you know, a coup d'etat and just kind of thinking, what, what is that? And to be seen and thinking all day the same thing. Wow, this looks like Chile. Uh, I I mean, this is extraordinary. And at the same time, my ire, uh, Brian, 
for this notion of, um, well, you know, is this going to be the last thing, the last straw for the Republicans? Are you kidding? We're talking about two weeks from President Trump assumedly leaving or being forced out of the White House. And this is a time when they're saying, oh, my God, this is too much. Yeah, there were some of us who were saying when you walk or take an escalator down and begin by using hate speech against people just like me, an immigrant from Mexico, that that was the sign. And you know, Brian, many of us who were saying, hey, uh, hate speech, careful journalist, what's going on here? We're actually told, you know what? Calm down. Like, this is normal. This is not normal. And we are now the laughing stock of the United uh, of the world. This is so when that Biden we, we says, are purveyors of democracy. No, 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 no. When Biden says that he wants to build a new unity in this country, do you see it as a lost cause or Pollyanna-ish? No, I think it's something that we have to work towards, but we also have to recognize what just happened. You had a president inciting a coup d'etat, and you can't just say, "Oh." I'm going to reach over the aisle now. No. And I think to not recognize, I mean, the conversation now, as you know, on Twitter is if these protesters were black or brown, indigenous women, uh, they would have been shot with rubber bullets. They would have immediately been dispersed. So to not kind of face that head on and to instead just, you know, kind of do a let's let's just you know find our common ground no 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 we have to now go even more deeper into understanding how this is possible and and reaching across the aisle uh, inside in, i do think is pollyannish this is about deep dialogue and accountability stacy in san francisco you're on america are we ready hello stacy hi there thank you for taking my call um i am a uh a U.S. Army veteran uh, who my specialty was psychological operations. I also am an entrepreneur who's uh, had two companies uh, go public. And I just want to say that what we witnessed today is the logical outcome of everything that we've seen going on with the Republican Party since the late 1970s, since Nixon. It's the same people in many cases involved in making this happen. And there has not been, for decades, consequence enforced upon this bad behavior. And what we're seeing is the natural outcome of lack of consequence. If we are to get reconciliation, we have to enforce punishment and consequences upon the actors who created this situation. I think the senator is absolutely right that it's predictable, and that we have to have a deeper conversation, but it has to begin with a clear message that the law applies to everyone. What kind of consequences, in your opinion, should come for whom? The 14th Amendment needs to be utilized, and the, the senators and the representatives who supported this coup today need to not be seated. The, uh, the persons who participated in the attack on the Capitol and those who supported them need to be identified and charged with the crimes applicable, whether it's shooting death, assault, or sedition. 
Stacy, thank the, you very these much. These folks feel immune. You know, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, everybody, you know, when you look at this, what was the punishment? They all got sent home. They're putting out cigarette butts in, in hallowed ground that belongs to all of us. That has been, you know, a symbol of American democracy. But this isn't new. You know, we take go back to Charlottesville, you know, and the president saying there were good people on both sides. Again, no consequences, no calling out of this behavior. Think about what happened in Michigan when the, the right-wing militia occupied the building there. And the president said, well, they're understandably upset, you know, and, and so there's been this kind of numbing of America. And most people like me have said, just get them out, just just fight in this election. The democratic process will work its way. And every time our, our whole adjustment, we're like the frog in the water, right? We're just we just get adjusted and adjusted to the temperature until it boils over until until the democracy perishes. And that's exactly where we are. And, and, and Stacy's absolutely right. There has not been consequences. And typically the consequence for people who engage in racism, misogyny, has been calling out and, and, and you know, basically isolating them and saying that's not American behavior. But we have a president now who basically says that's okay. That's who we are as America. And so this is your place. And, so, and you feel culturally separated from what's going on in this country, and I'm with you. I'll stand with you. And these people who stormed the Capitol today, they think they're patriots, and what they are is terrorists. And, and we, have, we have never imposed consequences. In fact, today, they let these people walk out of the Capitol. I don't know if they, if they got their name and even address to charge them, you know, with, without so much as, uh, you know, if, I, when I was there, they got out those, those um, rubber bands and tied their arms and at least charged them $5. None of these people, it seemed to me, got charged. They just got invited to the door. Thank you, Senator Heitkamp. Uh, Ross Douthat, your book is called The Decadent Society, America Before and After the Pandemic. Decadent can mean different things in different contexts. How do you mean it? And to prematurely launch your second edition, where would the events of today fit in? Well, the events of today are sort of on the line between what I'm calling decadence and what you would call real crisis and tragedy. Um, I think one of the distinctive features of American politics generally, but especially in the Trump era, has been this kind of this kind of virtual reality politics where people are sort of play acting extremism in the way that the senators I was describing earlier in the show were sort of play acting their way through this certification process. Um, And, you know, Donald Trump postures as an authoritarian um, on on his Twitter feed, but then, you know, was actually throughout his four years, one of the weakest chief executives we had who couldn't even get the military to, you know, do what he wanted when he wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan or Syria, right? It's this sort of extraordinarily weak figure who nonetheless sort of occupies this, um, this sort of position as a budding despot through his rhetoric. Um, and you know, today was different because it was more real, right? It was not just as, you know, as in a similar way, the protests over the summer were more real and less virtual. We had real riots in the U S not just sort of Twitter warfare in the summer. And now we've had a real riot slash insurrection, um, 
on the Capitol grounds. And that's a shift. How big a shift? I don't know. Um, you know, the images of this of the insurrection are still sort of absurd. You know, there are guys dressed as Vikings wandering through the halls of the Capitol. And on the one hand, I agree with um, the caller and the senator that there have to be consequences for this and more people need to be arrested. And I hope that more arrests are made and people are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. At the same time, I mean, as, as far as we've learned in the last hour, one person was shot. One protester was shot and killed by the police. And you can understand why the police would not want to, you know, open up further violence in the halls of the Capitol itself. Um, but then again, this lends it lent this curious air of unreality to the proceedings that has been, I think, a crucial part of of our politics for a while now, where it's not clear what is real, you know, what is what is real fascism and what is pretend fascism, what's real <laughs> Marxism and what is, you know, people people pretending on the internet. And but today, you know, today was bad. The question is how bad and and what and what comes of it next. Cruz hey, Brian, I, I, I'm sorry, Brian, I just, I, I do, I have to just Go make ahead, a Maria. correction Go to ahead. what Ross, Ross just said, because when there were Black Lives Matter protests across the United States, at all hours of the day and evening, those protests, many of which included lots of white folks, were all peaceful. So, when you say Ross that there were riots there, it's like no, 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 no. That's the no, kind no. That's what are you talking about? We had the worst riots in the United States over the summer that we've had since the early 1990s, arguably and, and, and since the late 60s, right, early 70s. Whole right. city and blocks were and, burned. And you're going to tell me that at that is, moment, one at a time. Ross, finish your sentence. We're, we're, I, I'm trying. I should aim for reconciliation instead. But I do. There were many, many peaceful protests over the course of the summer, and the peacefulness of many of the protests was admirable and exemplary. There also were substantial and significant riots in the U.S. over this over the summer, and I think the inability to acknowledge that is problematic for understanding what is really happening in the country. No. Maria, go ahead. I guess then I'm just going to forget about the image of white men who were actually with clubs breaking the windows. And then we actually found that out. And instead, we're blaming protesters who were actually peacefully protesting. But OK, I don't think I think that part of why this matters is because you you have to be able to, in fact, speak clearly about what is happening here. And to begin to mix those things up is exactly how we get to this point where I'm sitting here saying, wow. So I guess, you know, white people, majority, because there were brown people and black people in, in, these, uh, in these insurrectionalists, but just kind of walking through the Senate where the police are just kind of, wow, they just kind of like to walk through things, huh? And nothing happens. That is the reality of how people were seeing what was happening, what we are not talking about right now. And what we have to name is actually white supremacy and structural racism. It is ugly. But this is, in fact, what did Donald Trump ultimately run on? Everybody was saying, oh, you know, economic insecurity. And then we had to read later when the polling was done and all the research. Actually, white America was very threatened because of the fact that there is extraordinary demographic change, which guess what? 
led to what happened in Georgia, led by black voters. Georgia is a state that is experiencing some of the most intensive demographic change and growth. And that is what the future of this country looks like when it's able to vote, go through voter suppression. And, And so, if I may, Morgan in Athens, Georgia, you're on America. Are we ready? Hello, Morgan. Thank you for calling in. Hi there. Thank you for having me. What would you like to say? Hi. And yes. Hi. Um, well, I, thanks for having me. I, I agree with um, what the woman, woman before me was saying. Um, and, and so here in Athens, Georgia, you know, we're, we're definitely um, a blue town here, and I'm proud to be an Athenian. And I was so proud today of Georgia um, for, our, for flipping the Senate. Oh, my God. I mean, this is so big. Um, but to see um, Trump, you know, basically being a terrorist leader, that's how I put it, and encouraging all of these acts to happen at the Capitol today, that is just, um, you know, that is just disgusting. And all I can say is that, you know, we have Raphael Warnock, black man, first black man to be a senator from Georgia, which I think I'm, su- I'm surprised. I mean, why is it taking it this long in the first place? And John Ossoff, you know, Jewish. And, and now all of these people who are, who support Trump and who I think are just downright white supremacists, um, having a temper tantrum and storming the Capitol and using tactics that they themselves were uh, condemning when Black Lives Matter was having protests as well, and and them being even worse than that, um, and and somehow them you know getting away with it, or at least you know from what I've seen on the media today, you know just being able to climb the walls and and you know get into the barricades and sitting, the image of of, of one man sitting in the Capitol just just right there, and Nancy Pelosi's office, I mean. To me, it's it's frightening, um, and it's very sad because I was so elated all day today with our Senate victory, and to see this happen, um, it concerns me for America and and the fact that we're so divided. Morgan, thank you very much, Senator Heitkamp. You were trying to get in. Well, I, I mean, I I think it's so important that we not let, you know, uh, five thousand people determine whether America is, is, whether we can heal America and the divisions in America. That's exactly when they win. You know, people always say, well, how do you, how do you do it? I say, look, uh, when, when I'm out campaigning, when I meet someone who I know is not persuadable, that's not someone I spend a lot of time with. Because what you've got to do is you've got to create enough momentum that those people, and that, by, those, by that, I mean those people who laid siege on the Capitol today are marginalized, that they are, they are the scourge of our society instead of somehow a legitimate protest group, which is not what they are. And so, I, I mean, I think 
that we, we spend way too much time in America focused on the unpersuadable and don't spend enough time having a conversation with people who have legitimate concerns about what's going on, whether it's cultural or economic. And that's where we can really begin this process of real discussion. Um, I want to just, just mention a group that um, it, there's a woman in Baltimore who started a group called Thread because she felt even in the city of Baltimore that there were uh, groups, uh, neighborhoods that knew nothing about other neighborhoods. And she just started this little nonprofit that invites people to have and dinner have together. To and because we're up against a break, but we'll continue in a minute. It's America. Are we ready? It's America, Are We Ready? I'm Brian Lehrer with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp, New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, and Latino USA host Maria Hinojosa, and your calls on the extraordinary events of the last 24 hours at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And joining us briefly now from KQED Radio in San Francisco, well, she is in San Sacramento, the capital of uh, California, of course, is Katie Orr from KQED. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the program. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. And I see you've been covering protests at the capital. That is the state capital in Sacramento. Was there anything like we saw in Washington at the state level today? You know, I think initially people were worried that there was going to be something that mimicked what we saw in D.C. in Sacramento, but that turned out not to be the case. Uh, I got to downtown Sacramento around 11 o'clock. There were a couple hundred people there uh, at a rally uh, in support of President Donald Trump. Um, There were also members of the alt-right group, the Proud Boys, standing around, and there uh, looked like um, there might be some altercations between, you know, people from this rally and counter protesters. There was a heavy, heavy police presence. The police were in their riot gears. Uh, but after about two hours, it kind of fizzled out and it started to rain. Um, and in California, we don't love the rain. I'm not so used to it. And uh, people uh, kind of went home and the whole thing died out uh, which I think is pretty fortunate because we've seen these uh, riots, uh, we've seen these rallies uh, the past couple of weeks in Sacramento, and they have turned violent on occasion. Katie, I'm curious, given the state of the pandemic in California, but also pushback there, as in so many places, about some of the um, restrictions on behavior and the mask uh, mandate or encouragement to use masks. Do you see those two things as kind of overlapping and merging into one sort of amorphous protest group? Uh, Yes, there has been a lot of frustration, I think, particularly on the right uh, with Governor Gavin Newsom here. Um, We've had a lot of businesses being shut down for a while. You know, churches were supposed to be shut down. Schools largely are still not operating. And people are getting more and more frustrated with that. Um, There have been protests against what we call the stay-at-home order that much of the state is under right now. I believe, gosh, about 95% of the population is under the stay-at-home order. And um, so there is is also a, a, a strong effort underway to collect signatures for a possible recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. 
so as you say, I think we're seeing a lot of these forces combine and, um, you know, be promoted at rallies such as this one. It is become sort of this amorphous cause. People are just some people in California are just extremely upset with the way the government is being run right now. The California government is being run. KQED's Katie Orr in Sacramento. Thank you for chiming in. You're welcome. Roy in Middlesex, New Jersey. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Roy. Hi, Brian. Uh, how are you doing? I enjoy your show, and I'm enjoying this discussion, but I have to say that while Mitch McConnell is to be applauded for taking taking a stance against delusional thinking and for bringing out a lot of what the right has done to bring on the division in this country. However, what I'd like to ask the panel is how much is the left or how much are they willing to acknowledge that the left is responsible for a lot of the division in this country? Because there is a perception and there is a push by a lot of extremist elements of the left that's basically going out and saying that white, straight, and male equals bad, whereas color, female, and gay equals good. And I think that that divisive perception is being created. And I think also that when you have somebody like Donald Trump in, in the White House, part of what made him so dangerous was the imperialization of the executive branch that's been going on since Roosevelt, okay, that the left is largely responsible for that Nixon is certainly responsible for, to name someone on the right just for balance. And, you know, I've heard these things done on NPR. I've heard it done on this show, and I can give an example. And, and Brian, I'm sorry to say I've heard it done on your show, which I do enjoy and find very educational, although um, as a libertarian I really don't agree with a lot of what I hear on it. So, uh, and I think that that's part of the problem is that a lot of people, I'm not tooting my own horn, but a lot of people, unlike myself, are not willing to listen to people who don't say things they agree with. But I don't think that's exclusively the province of the right. I think there's a lot of that on the left as well. Maria Inahosa, would you like to take that? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess, you know, having children taken from their parents and put in cages might be, you know, too too radical, too lefty to be upset about. Um, and, and that's where I'm just like... See, I don't, I, don't, I don't get with that because what is radical right now, sir, with all due respect, and I would love to sit down and speak with you because one of my roles and jobs as somebody who chose to become an, an American citizen because I was not born in this country and as a journalist is to, to dialogue. But this notion that we need to kind of calm down or and, – and by the way, I don't identify I, – I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a critical everywhere, okay? Uh, so the left or the right. But, but this notion that somehow, let's say, thinking about children in cages or George Floyd being murdered and then saying, you know, defund the police is just a little bit too radical. No, sir. What is radical is George Floyd being murdered not by the police, but in an extrajudicial killing that we all witnessed. What is radical is being is children being taken from their parents as a form of policy and punishment. That is what is radical. And so I while I completely agree that, you know, what's important, look, self-critique, dude, I do it every day. I have a family. They critique me every day. I'm all about that. But we need to, again, in my view, begin to understand and not make these these platitudes about, well, this and that is equal. It is not. Right. It is not equal. 
Ross Douthat, I'm I'm curious if you were identifying with that caller because I read your column from last month that was not supporting Trump, but trying to explain to Democrats, if that's a fair way to put it, why so many Republicans believe Trump's lie that the election was stolen. So where do you jump in here around Maria and the caller? I mean, well, if the caller was listening to our earlier segment, he knows that Maria and I have some disagreements about um, what exactly happened over the summer, the scale of rioting surrounding the Black Lives Matter protests and so on. Uh, And so I'm, I'm, somewhat more sympathetic to his point that there is radicalization on both the right and the left in the United States right now, and that we've sort of moved through various moments where radicalization on one side seems to be spiking and then radicalization on the other. And, uh, you know, nobody on the left took over the U.S. Capitol this summer, but there was a steady siege of U.S. government buildings um, in the Pacific Northwest. There were assaults on national monuments, statues of founding fathers and so on. So there were there were moments, I think, that um, sort of seemed radical and incipiently revolutionary. But then also there's just been a dynamic in U.S. politics where... <clears throat> You know, one reason that um, the Republican Party has become a more radical formation, and it clearly has, is that there's been a kind of consolidation of liberal power in many, many American institutions, from the academy through corporate HR departments, through Silicon Valley, and so on, that has changed the landscape of American politics in ways that I think, you know, lots of people recognize without being able to fully articulate. So that's all real. The other thing that's real, though, is that there's no equivalent to Donald Trump on the liberal side. And this is what where I agree with the liberals. There's no singular liberal politician and figure who is such a professional arsonist in American political life. Um, and that, again, is what makes this moment today distinctive. Mm-hmm. It's not that there hasn't been violence before, it's that you have a president of the United States who didn't, you know, I, I don't think you should call this a coup because a coup involves a president order using state power to try and do something. It's more that Trump whipped up a crowd and then went back to the White House to watch what happened on TV. And Nancy Pelosi, for all her faults, doesn't do things like that. <laughs> you know, the Dem- major Democratic politicians don't don't do things like that. And it's why the sooner Trump is gone, the better. Senator Heitkamp, your current project, I see, is to reconnect rural voters to the Democratic Party. Rural voters supported Donald Trump overwhelmingly, despite all, at least as of the November election. So what's the disconnect as you see it, and how does it connect to the conversation that the caller and Maria and Ross have been having? Well, I, I think it, it comes down to respect, and and I, you know, I I have to say this idea that liberals have taken over every institution—it's just such BS, and it gets really tiring. But but I but I but I will say this: I think that when you are uncomfortable having a conversation with people who don't agree with you, and you only want to sit in a room with people who do agree with you, that's when you get polarization. And the Democratic Party has gotten uncomfortable sitting and talking to people who are right to life, sitting and talking to people who who feel like, like maybe they're doing more than other citizens are doing. And I'm not saying these are true attitudes or believable attitudes, but they are, they are heartfelt 
uh, you know, kind of grievances that people have that are being ignored. And the more you let someone like Donald Trump fuel those grievances without a heartfelt discussion on this is why I think what I think, why do you think what you think, then you've opened it up to, to engage in cult-like behavior. And so when you don't have those discussions, you build a cult following, which is exactly what we saw today. And that's why we need to have dialogue and we need to have a reconciliation. But it needs to be approached with one simple word. It's called respect. Respect for the other person's opinion. I'm not saying I'm going to respect everybody. I don't respect those people who stormed the Capitol today. But there's, there's 64 million Trump voters, not any of them. I mean, a very, very small faction of them are those people we saw today. The other ones are worthy and, and need a discussion and need, uh, we need to have that reconciliation that you're talking about, Brian. Lydia in Berea, Kentucky. You're on America. Are we ready? Hello, Lydia. Hi. Um, so I'm kind of that, like, uh, part of the rural community that actually did not vote for Trump in this election, and uh, I was going to discuss um, some some things that need to be reconciled with my generation as I am a part of the Gen Z generation, um, old enough to vote. I am a 19-year-old, and I think the most important part of trying to reconcile this year and this election, I, I believe, and especially the events from today, is is to focus on mental health. I feel like my generation is the starting point of trying to reconcile the disagreements that um, this bipartisan um, bipartisan state has um, come to. And I, I, I believe that, um, well, I believe that it, it, it's take, it, there's a lot of things that this year, this election, has taken a toll, like, totally, it, it, th- this has been nothing like we've ever seen before. And especially coming into um, political, me coming into the political view, um, not knowing what to expect, um, it's hard for me to even get, even get, like, partisan on this. I, I'm not sure where to stand, and I know where I should stand is not with the ideals that Trump has put in place. So or let me ask you, Lydia. Ideals. So Lydia, for you as a 19-year-old who cast your first vote in a presidential election, congratulations. Yes. With Thank Democrats you. apparently about to have full control, meaning House, Senate, and White House, what do you want from them right. most of all? Um, let me think. I well, I, one thing I really want is a focus on mental health um, in in my community, especially. Um, there is a lack thereof. There's a lot of people who are um, raised by their grandparents where I live. There's a lot of people who have uh, been raised by single mothers. There's a lot of poverty um, in certain parts of my um, not only my hometown. Who has, which has a large um, homeless population, but also um, in parts maybe like 45 minutes from my hometown. Um, I think that education 
um, is definitely a highlight that I want to see from the Democratic Party. I I wished there was a way for me to get um, free um, college education, but that's just not the case in um, the current state. Um, and Lydia, I'm going to leave it there. I thank you very much for your call and contributing a lot. Senator Heitkamp, um, I want to get your reaction to some breaking news. They are back now debating the seating of the electors uh, in the Senate. And I've just seen that Kelly Leffler, who was defeated, of course, in her attempt to be elected uh, in Georgia. Of course, she was appointed originally, so she is a sitting senator. And she was going to be one of the ones who objected to the seating of the electors. And now she says she's not. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that she lost an election, and uh, if the election were two days from now as opposed to uh, yesterday, that might be a different story. I I think this was all about political uh, opportunistic behavior, and, you know, she no longer has a dog in the the hunt, so let's let's get rehabilitated really quickly. And, you know, that's going to sound, you know, kind of like anti-theme of this group, but we also have to call out hypocrisy. We also have to say, look, you know, the Constitution did not change, Senator Loeffler, between Tuesday and today. I mean, you know, why, why did it take this horrible act of violence for you to stand up for the American Constitution? And, and we need to hold, at a minimum, we need to hold public officials accountable for their oath of office to the Constitution and not to a political party or to a political figure. We just have about 20 seconds left, and I'll stay with you, Senator Heitkamp, since part of your current project is to reconnect rural voters to Democrats. Is there a policy that would start to do that? Or is it an attitude? Or where do you do it? Because these elections are very close, even when your party wins. Well, I think you do it with dialogue first. But that young woman just hit the nail on the head when she talked about mental health, behavior and mental health. We have huge challenges in delivering of services, huge challenges with rural poverty. And there is, there's got to be a discussion so people don't feel like they're being left behind in the American dream. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, Ross Douthat, Maria Inahosa, thank you all so much for joining us. And callers, thank you. That's America Are We Ready for this hour. I invite you to tune in for my daily live call-in show, The Brian Lair Show, at WNYC.org, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, or subscribe to my national politics podcast called Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast. Thanks again to all our guests and callers and listeners for your time. From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. In this hour, we will talk about the extraordinary events of the last 24 hours. There was the storming of the United States Capitol by a pro-Trump crowd who actually clashed with Capitol Police. A curfew is now in effect in Washington until tomorrow morning. Almost lost in that unprecedented drama is the projected victory of the two Democrats in the Georgia Senate runoffs that would give Democrats control of the Senate and the historic speech by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor endorsing the presidential election results as important to the future of democracy. So America, are we ready? We'll have live coverage, your calls, and three leading guests. 
from WNYC in New York. This is America, Are We Ready? And let me be frank, the original schedule title of tonight's America, Are We Ready? episode was America, Are We Ready to Reconcile? It was supposed to be a big picture conversation about America after Trump and America 401 years after the first enslaved people were brought here against their will. And I hope to still have some of that conversation. But it'll now happen in the context of the dramatic events of the last 24 hours. The networks, including Fox, that's worth saying, have projected John Ossoff, as well as Raphael Warnock now, the winners of the Georgia runoff elections. They would be Georgia's first Jewish and first black U.S. senators and give the Democrats control of both houses of Congress in addition to the presidency. There's the attempt by some Republicans to overturn or delay today's congressional certification of the Electoral College vote for president. Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell seem to be sticking with the Constitution. However, we will play a clip of Mitch McConnell, like you've probably never heard him before. And there was the storming of the Capitol, of course, by some Trump supporters that former President George W. Bush has now called an insurrection. Trump's original White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, said, quote, many of these folks are nothing but domestic terrorists. So what a 24 hours it's been. We will try to digest some of it and hopefully look ahead to the prospect of reconciling our differences and reconciling our debts. And this is a national call-in show, so our lines are open for your take from left, right, or other about the events of today and how to reconcile for tomorrow. Our call-in number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. Joining us now, Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and the author of The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty, and the forthcoming Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Kai Wright, host of WNYC's The United States of Anxiety. And Rich Lowry, editor of National Review and author of the book, The Case for Nationalism. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Susan Page as Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Reince Priebus says domestic terrorists. George W. Bush says insurrection. I see that Twitter has tonight locked President Trump's account for 12 hours and demanded that he delete two tweets, including one that appeared to excuse the violence because people are angry about him being declared not reelected. I guess my first question is, where's Mike Pence tonight? And is this the moment when the Republican Party finally quits him, Donald Trump, and even considers the 25th Amendment? Well, Brian, at this moment, uh, Mike Pence is in the chair presiding over the Senate. The Senate about an hour ago resumed the debate over whether to accept the uh, Electoral College slate from Arizona. The first and perhaps the only challenge that we're going to hear tonight uh, to the acceptance of the Electoral College. Uh, Mike Pence has put himself at odds with the president today. He did that this afternoon by announcing he did not have the unilateral power to force the rejection of some of these electoral slates that the president wanted him to object to. The president objected to that pretty fiercely on Twitter, but then everything got overtaken uh, by the the violence of a mob that breached the Capitol and took it over for some time this afternoon. Uh, the 25th Amendment, something people are talking about in the 
House. Some Democrats are calling talking about impeachment. One thing we should keep in mind, though, is we only have 14 days left in this presidency. Right. And 25th Amendment would be more of an emergency removal initiated by the vice president and involving members of the cabinet. So, Kai Wright, this isn't about policy disputes, even radical policy disputes. How dangerous is Donald Trump right now for these next 14 days, in your opinion? Well, he's plainly wildly dangerous, um, but he's been wildly dangerous for some time now. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I, I, you know, Brian, I am, will be honest, I am enraged. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, I, I don't want to act like uh, I have a calm demeanor about the events of today or where we stand as a country, uh, because we are plainly no. The answer to whether we're ready to reconcile, no, we are not. And we're not because we have not yet been honest uh, about what reconciliation will take. And there are two things I think that are cr- crucially important about that, uh, to be honest about. And one is, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell's speech today was not moving, it was galling, that this is a man who has openly and unapologetically, uh, setting all partisan, all ideology to the side, this is a man who has openly and unapologetically said that he is not going to do anything to try to compromise or to work with people who are not part of his party for over a decade. Uh, So he is, this is his problem. He did this as much as Donald Trump did this. And for him to now at this late date, to at this late date to be concerned about the state the state of our republic and the health of our democracy uh, is is hypocrisy and galling and we have to be honest about this is way more than Donald Trump that brought us to this we also have to be honest about the fact that you know it's we don't like to talk about not it's not just Donald Trump there are millions of people who have supported Donald Trump and we have to talk about those people and why the fact that there are this is a man who through his entirety of his public life certainly throughout his campaign and his presidency, has centered, has unapologetically centered misogyny and racism and xenophobia. And millions of Americans said, I'm okay with that. Now, there are all kinds of complicated reasons why people did that, why they, why they came to that conclusion, but they did that. And tens of thousands of them showed up today at the Capitol with the intention of, of, of overthrowing the government of the United States. And so, because they did not like the outcome like the- of an election. And so we have to be honest about there is a significant part of the United States of America that is not prepared to live in a plural society and will do anything, anything leading up to violence against the state to to keep us from being in a plural society. And until we are honest about that, we can't, no, we can't reconcile without that honesty. So I, I am terrified and I am enraged and it goes well past Donald Trump. Rich Lowry, how dangerous are these next two weeks? And what's your response to Kai? Well, I, I think Mitch McConnell has given two really admirable speeches today. He's obviously an adept and cold-blooded and, and hard-fighting partisan, but there's difference between that and wanting to throw the, overthrow the institutions of the United States government or have a Congress decide to disregard duly certified election results from the states. And McConnell's answer to that was no. It was hell no. It would destroy our institutions and our constitutional republic as we know it. He tried to stop his uh, colleagues from going down this path uh, of objecting and gave a really forceful speech earlier this afternoon and even more forceful speech this evening reacting to the hideous events 
with these rioters breaking into the Capitol and astonishingly, shockingly disrupting the workings of American democracy, saying we're not going to be intimidated and we're going to go forward. So uh, I, I think, you know, we're a contentious people. Uh, argument is part of what America is all about. We've always had partisan divisions, even when the founders thought we weren't going to have parties. They'd already broken into parties, in, in effect. Um, so uh, all that's part of the warp and woof of American democracy. It's just what we've seen from and heard from Donald Trump, and especially uh, witnessed, again, shockingly, this afternoon in the Capitol. That is not what this country is about. That's a threat to our system. Um, it's it's a, a threat. It's a attempt to subvert democracy that should be rejected by all people of goodwill. Let's take a phone call. Fred in Plant City, Florida. You're on America. Are we ready? Fred, thank you for calling in. Oh, thank you all for uh, taking my call. Uh, I had a question. Uh, can you hear me? Sure can. Oh, yeah, I just wondered why the police agency that was in charge of the uh, Capitol didn't use uh, their firearms. Would That's you have wanted them to open fire? Fred, well, thank you. go ahead. Police officer or an expert in, on it, but that's usually what they do. Susan I mean, Page, we, well, go ahead, Kai. You want to get I mean, in on that? We can certainly go ahead. say, obviously. I mean, I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm personally happy they did not open fire. Um, that you know, it's certainly there will be many, many lookbacks on what happened and why the police department, why the Capitol Police, and beyond the Capitol Police, law, federal law enforcement in general, were not prepared for uh, an event that was well built in advance <laughs> that we've been all seen coming, uh, you know, but there has been an enormous amount of conversation today that is legitimate um, amongst those of us who have looked at poli the way police have greeted other groups of people in far. I mean, so let's bring Miriam Carey's name into this conversation, a black mm -hmm. woman in 2013 whose car ran into the gates of the Capitol was shot and killed. Uh, we could go on this way uh, with people who have been killed uh, by law enforcement, and it and it has been a thing. It has been it is it's been a a I think it's worth saying a trauma to many of us, to black people in particular, to watch what has unfolded today and think, my God, you know, after all of the death we have seen from people who just were in there sleeping in the beds of their own home. Uh, and were shot and killed by police. And these people stormed the Capitol and threatened the lives of the government and were sh and literally walked out of the Capitol cheering is is astonishing. It's astonishing. And and for and I, and, it, and it's and I think a lot of us are are it's was traumatizing to watch. Susan Page, do you know if Capitol Police or any of the others involved have been asked that question? <laughs> oh, yes, uh, because the lack of preparation for a rally that was well advertised in advance that you knew was going to have the potential for violence in the streets, the idea that the security wasn't better on the Capitol is shocking. And you you, you, you mentioned the, the incident where a mentally ill woman drove into a barricade and was shot dead. They shut down the Capitol immediately and kept it shut for some time in a very effective way with that incident and with this one there seemed to be almost no preparation they had 
metal barricades that were easy to hop over. Uh, they were incredible. The law enforcement officials were incredibly ineffective at preventing these rioters from getting into the Capitol. You saw these shocking photos of a guy in boots with his boots on Nancy Pelosi's desk uh, and a woman at the dais of the of the House chamber where Pence and Pelosi had been an hour earlier shaking her fist and declaring a victory for the revolution. I mean, this the, the, I think the Capitol Police and other law enforcement agencies are going to be scrutinized about the failure to have basic security set up in a situation they knew had the potential to be violent. It's America. Are we ready? We'll continue in a minute. From WNYC in New York, it's America. Are we ready? As we talk about the dramatic events of the last 24 hours with Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, and Kai Wright, host of WNYC's The United States of Anxiety, and with you on the phones at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And here's about 40 seconds of what Joe Biden had to say about the events of today at the Capitol. Notwithstanding what I saw today and we're seeing today, I remain optimistic about the incredible opportunities. There has never been anything we can't do when we do it together. And this God-awful display today is bringing home to every Republican and Democrat and Independent in the nation that we must step up. This is the United States of America. There's never, ever, 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 ever been a thing we've tried to do that we've done it together. We've not been able to do it. Rich Lowry, what did you think about his mix of hope and condemnation there in those 40 seconds? It was appropriate. And, you know, I think a lot of things that Biden has said um, since he won the election and uh, really really before his big speeches, they're, they're kind of um, typical political boilerplate, but they stand out because President Trump has so rarely said or meant such things. And it it would have been obviously appropriate for the President of the United States to give the kind of speech that Biden did, but he can't. He won't. He gave a hostage tape-like video released on Twitter that didn't condemn this heinous attack on our democracy did call on the the protesters and rioters to go home but expressed great sympathy for their sentiments and continued to repeat the poisonous lie that this election was an assault on our democracy and his great landslide was stolen from him so he's uh, just kicked away whatever moral legitimacy he still had um he, he totally uh, kicked away today. Kai Wright, what were you thinking listening to Joe Biden today? And is he setting up for the other kind of reconciliation? As I said at the beginning, reconciliation as in kiss and make up. Yeah, but also reconcile as in reconcile our debts and to no one more than African-Americans. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess watching his speech, I, I really feel like that it, it's a, it's an encapsulation of what I think we'll be watching for the next four years with Joe Biden. You know, I mean, there's a way in which, uh, you know, many have said he turns out to be the perfect candidate for the moment in the in the sense of uh, his ability to empathize, uh, his ability to um, make contact with the pain that the country is feeling in the moment. Um, and, um, and his, and I, and his genuine, I believe, I, I mean, I don't know the man, but, but I think his genuine ideological and personal belief in the idea of, of Americans working together to solve problems. I think he, he you know, he's, I, that seems to be a, a true organizing principle of his politics and ideology. And so that is hopeful. And that is something that I think we will keep seeing from Joe Biden. The flip side of that is, as I said at the start of the hour, if we are going to have reconciliation, we are, all go, we are first going to have to have honesty. And I think that is the challenge with Joe Biden. I mean, because when he says this is not, you know, there's been a lot of people who looked at this today and said, oh, this is not America. Well, a lot of us looked at this today and said, this is, in fact, America. Uh, that, you know, again, this is a we, we there are significant numbers of Americans who have looked at the misogyny and racism and xenophobia of the Trump era and said, I'm good with it. And we just have to be honest about that. And 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 there are more years in our history than not in which violence against black people uh, have been normal. And there are more histories in our years than not in which uh, a, any threat to a whites only leadership structure in Washington was met with violence. Um, and so we have to be honest about those things if we're going to reconcile. And so so it's a it's a it's a. It's a twofold thing with Joe Biden. He doesn't feel capable of that honesty. I haven't heard that kind of honesty from him. Um, but his other honesty, which is also true, is this deep, deep belief in our ability to nonetheless move forward together if we try. And that is optimistic and hopeful and necessary right now. Sarah in Kenner, Louisiana. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Sarah. Hi, everyone. How are we doing this evening? All right. Under the circumstances, I guess we should say. Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I love the idea of hope and reconciliation, and I'm a big fan of Joe Biden, and it's really refreshing to hear his optimistic rhetoric. But as an American citizen who participated in the Black Lives Matter um, protests in Phoenix, Arizona, before I moved here to Kenner, I was shot with uh, rubber bullets, beanbags, mace, um, while I was kneeling in front of officers with my hands raised, completely unarmed. And um, that is just the unfortunate reality that many Americans in this country are facing, that the people we put in charge to protect us and help us and keep us safe have actually been physically, painfully attacking us. And I've lost a lot of faith. Um, I'm not a black woman. I am a Hispanic woman, but I pass for white. I've lost a lot of faith in these institutions. And watching today's episode and seeing these people just run amok in these halls with literally no consequences while thousands of Americans suffer brutal treatment at the hand of our, these authorities and these institutions. I just don't, I'm getting enraged <laughs> just, just running through it now. I don't see how reconciliation is possible without honest conversation about the realities of institutionalized racism within this country, without um, taking acknowledgement and responsibility of the mistakes that have been made in the past and, uh, and being proactive about making changes for the people who have suffered under those institutions. In your opinion, you. Sarah, 
what policies, if it is a matter of policy uh, and not just acknowledgement, in your opinion, would be at the top of your list for Biden to show that he is serious about that? Well, I think first and foremost, an acknowledgement that the police went completely overboard, that treatment is not fair, that it is not equal, that people who are black in protest have to be shielded by white bodies so that they may live through that, that experience. That first and foremost needs to be acknowledged. And I think that taking some of the funds that have been allocated towards, towards policing these communities and stripping them of their civil rights and giving them to communities to distribute themselves, a reallocation of funds that move away from the militaristic riot year um, kind of terror that, that, kind of, uh, that dominates these communities now um, would be a huge first step. Even a 6%, a 5%, a 2% change in city budgets that actually allocate those funds directly into the hands of activists and people who are making positive changes in the communities would be a great first step. That would be that would be my that would be my um, my opinion on on policies that that redistribute and redirect those funds. Sarah, thank um, you, thank you so much, Susan Page. There was one woman who was shot in the Capitol and later died. Is it clear to you what happened there? Well, there are rep- it is, is not entirely clear. Uh, there are reports that she was a protester who was trying to get into the House chamber and that she was shot by a law enforcement official. But I don't know for a fact that that's true. Um, that is, the I think, the only loss of life we've seen from today's actions. You know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really struck by Sarah's comments on what ha- will happen with, with the debate over the police and what is the role of President Biden and of, of the Congress? Because you remember that the Democratic House did pass a, a big criminal justice measure, a racial justice measure called the George Floyd Act in the aftermath of George Floyd's uh, murder, uh, but it didn't get even brought up in the Senate. Uh, and that is the that that sort of thing is a about to change because Democrats have now, I think, to their own surprise, managed to win control of the Senate uh, with the victory, the double victory in, in Georgia yesterday. Um, so that's something that we might see happen. Nancy Pelosi said that one of her top uh, priorities for this year was to deal with the kind of racial reckoning that got sparked uh, this year. Uh, but on the other hand, it was also one of the issues, the idea of of defunding the police or changing what the police do. One of the things that Democrats in moderate districts think really hurt them in the election on election day. So de- I think this is definitely going to be one of the big issues uh, of the year uh, in 2021. And also one that is going to be difficult for advocates and for the president, the new president. Parker in Birmingham, Alabama, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Parker. Hi there. Uh, well, I just got off of work, so I'm sorry if I'm going to repeat anything that's already been covered. Um, I just wanted to say that I think a big problem right now is that the online communities have really taken hold. People are getting their opinions presented to the front page of you know news tabloids, even though they're not professionals, they're not journalists. Um, I think people have fled to the Internet as a surrogate society over the last decade. But this year especially, uh, and it's done severe damage to the fabric of civility of American society, 
Um, the problem is twofold. It's just that uh, internet communities turn into echo chambers incredibly fast. Uh, having spent a lot of time online myself, it almost seems like an unavoidable evolution where disagreement quickly becomes uh, intolerable and it drives out centrists and moderates until you're left with a lunatic fringe kind of running the show, which it feels like creates a kind of feedback loop until you're left with a reign of terror situation where the radical becomes the new moderate and the extremist becomes the new radical and people almost forget how to interact with uh, legitimately opposing viewpoints. And then because this is all online, there's a veneer of anonymity that lets people behave you know, as horribly as they care to because there's no consequences. It's kind of a dehumanizing platform to have real discussion on because there are no peers for you to exchange real words with. You almost forget you're, that you're uh, talking to other people. And did you so, tell our uh, screener you wanted to say something about lockdowns? Uh, yeah, I think just this year in particular, because uh, we've had so much of our socialization cut off that people have sort of fled to online communities because that's the only way they can really talk with people and have discussions, and that's really exacerbated this issue. It seems like there's no wonder that we've, we've had riots over the summer, and now we're having a lot of riots now just because people are interacting with uh, you know, a lot of people online that they almost forget or uh, have really fringe beliefs compared to what uh, you know the normal moderate, the normal centrist behavior is. So uh, I, I don't really have a solution that doesn't sound like a platitude. Hopefully things get better when people mm -hmm. start, start going outside, vaccines get presented. I think people just need to remember that you know these, these opinions online, they're being... Uh, you know, presented by radicals, they don't speak for everybody. People need to go into discussions assuming, you know, the best in people and not thinking that the worst thing that their side has done, that they support that, you know, directly or indirectly. I think that's just part and parcel of living in the, the two-party system that we've been reduced down to. Parker, thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. Well, probably one thing everybody can agree on is that social media exacerbates polarization. Rich Lowry, where, where would you want to jump in on that? Well, it's certainly true. <clears throat> the um, small-D democratization of our media over the last 40 or 50 years, I think there have been big upsides to it. I think there are more and better sources of information that you can get more quickly and easily than ever before if you're interested actually in good information. But if you're interested in bad information, <laughs> there are more sources uh, of that than ever before and on the, the on the right this has just been a very notable phenomenon after the election people were actively seeking misinformation they they wanted to be misinformed they went to places like a gateway pundit a lunatic blogger they went to newsmax uh, an upstart right-wing cable network that for the longest time refused to acknowledge that joe biden was president-elect and i'm just not sure what you do about that phenomenon, how you put that genie back in the bottle, and I think it's just going to be a feature of our, our era for a long time now. Ty, do you agree about the problem, and do you have any solution? Well, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I think that what's important, what you're saying there, Rich, is that people went looking for this information, you know, and for misinformation, you know, and so I think it's, we, as a society in our politics, we we want to we want to find the solution in something that avoids the real conflict 
you know, on so many things, and particularly when it comes to race and the kinds of things that we've been divided about in the Trump era. And, um, you know, yes, it's certainly true that, you know, the, the way the Internet functions and social media functions can exasperate all kinds of things. Um, it's also true that for, you know, 100 plus years, we had a society built around segregation and we didn't have integration, didn't have the Internet then. Um, the, the issue, I think, is we have to actually be willing to take on the ideas. We have to actually be willing to say, hey, listen. There is there are a set of ideas that are that circulate in our country amongst people that are toxic and poisonous and we need to address them directly. And so like when I think about, you know, what can a president one of the things we've learned over the last four years or been reminded over the last four years is just how important a president can be in setting the tone and being a thought leader. And so. One of the things that Joe Biden could do uh, as a solution to this is to actually engage with this conversation and say, hey, you know, listen. There was a caller in the previous hour uh, who said something I felt it was really a heartfelt point about where he felt like, hey, you know, it seems like everything out there, the left is out there saying that if you're gay and black and female, you're great. And if you're white and male and straight, you're bad. Well, why does that person feel that? Because I don't think there's anyone ever said that, uh, you know, and, and I think the question we, some, we could use some presidential leadership on on talking to people about why if I as a black gay man say, hey, I'm proud of myself as a black gay man and I want rights as a black gay man, that doesn't take anything away from you as a white straight man. We can both exist in the society equally and share in our joys and our freedoms. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why do you feel threatened? Why does my freedom threaten you? And so I think like a, a leadership around those set of ideas is what's important. Whether we have newspapers or internets or TVs isn't going to change the existence of those ideas. We have to confront them. Rich Lowry, you want to keep going down this thread? Well, I mean, leadership is, is clearly uh, key, and that this is another one of the blameworthy aspects of Trump's presidency is that, you know, there would have been doubts about the election. There would have been whispered conversations among Republicans, just the, the way the, the vote played out uh, in the, the blue wall states. A lot of Republicans go to sleep, Trump winning those states, you know, because they start counting the early vote and absentee vote uh, late, you know, and those are going to be heavily Biden votes, and they wake up in the morning, all of a sudden Biden's winning and gaining on him in, in Pennsylvania. But Trump stoked all those doubts, made them worse, um, fed people lies. And there are a lot of people who, this is one of his uh, amazing qualities as a politician, who feel incredibly bounded uh, to that man and hang on his every word and believe things he said. So he poisoned the public uh, mind. So you had the, the, the guy with the biggest megaphone on the planet driving uh, this sort of misinformation and, and making it worse. So uh, obviously I have to jump in because we're up against a break, but we'll continue in a minute on America. Are we ready? From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? As we discuss the dramatic events of the last 24 hours in Georgia and in D.C. with Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, 
Kai Wright, host of WNYC's The United States of Anxiety, and Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. And joining us now for a couple of minutes from San Francisco is Guy Marzarati, politics reporter for KQED Radio in San Francisco. Guy, welcome to America. Are we ready? Thanks so much for having me. Now, the focus has been on Washington, but you've been looking at lawmakers' reaction across your state and across the nation. What's your headline? Well, really, I've been spending the day talking to many of our uh, dele- congressional delegation here in the Bay Area, largely while they were sheltering uh, in offices and, and secured rooms throughout the Capitol. Um, you know, as you can expect, just horror from, from many of them. One representative I talked to, Anna Eshu, went so far as to call it the worst day of her life. She was locked in a room with colleagues, staffers, uh, just really feeling helpless as she watched images of these insurrectionists carrying Confederate flags through the hall, defacing the Capitol. Um, And so, you know, it it was many hours throughout this afternoon when these representatives really were following this uh, along, like the rest of us, uh, really powerless uh, as these insurrectionists kind of moved through the Capitol. And do any of the lawmakers who you spoke to think that some good could come of this, that people on the right as well as on the left might be so disgusted that it has all come to this, that people are going to talk to each other differently, people are going to listen to each other differently, people are going to respect each other differently in a way that will change policy? Well, I think that might be, uh, I think, optimistically a long-term outcome of this. I think in the short term, really, what I heard today, first and foremost, was a resolve to get back to the floor tonight and finish uh, the job that they come to do today, this certify the Electoral College vote, Um, not only, I think, as a matter of business, uh, but to really show resolve uh, in the face of today's extremism, show that, you know, at the end of the day, Congress was still going to return in a bipartisan fashion uh, and finish the job they'd come to do. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time, Guy. And Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. One thing that seems to have changed is that some of the senators who are going to object to seating Joe Biden's electors are now backing off that. I'm seeing Senator Leffler, for example, from Georgia, who, of course, was defeated yesterday. I'm also seeing Senator Braun of Indiana and Senator Daines of Montana. What can you tell us? Yes, and Marsha Blackburn, I think, of Tennessee did the same thing. I, I do think there was a a sense among members of Congress that, number one, it was very important for them to come back into the chamber and do this business tonight to show, without letting a day pass, that they were not going to be deterred uh, by the mob that took over the Capitol. And I think it was, you know, you ask if it was going to change the way people interact with each other. That is a really optimistic statement about <laughs> about human <laughs> beings. Uh, we could all hope that would be true. I do think there is a sense of alarm about the temperature in town. Uh, and it's it's been at a, just everything here has been so hot and so angry for the past four years for the Trump presidency uh, that there is a sense of things spinning out of control. And so maybe this terrible incident today, which I do think was historic and horrific, uh, maybe that combined with this very uh, open bipartisan tone that President-elect Biden is trying to set, maybe that combines to help get people a little bit less polarized, a little bit more willing 
to work together. And, you know, the very evenly divided Congress may also help. A very narrow majority for Nancy Pelosi in the House and just a 50-50 split in the Senate. So that would have the effect, especially in the Senate, of empowering some of the more moderate voices in both parties uh, because they are potential swings on on important issues. All that said, we've been hoping for this for some time and been disappointed. So uh, let's let's hope, but I wouldn't bet, I guess I wouldn't bet the farm on it. And here's a little more of what President-elect Biden had to say as this was going on at the Capitol this afternoon. This is about a minute. You've heard me say before in different contexts, the words of a president matter no matter how good or bad that president is. At their best, the words of a president can inspire. At their worst, they can incite. Therefore, I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege, to storm the Capitol, to smash windows, to occupy offices, the floor of the United States Senate rummaging through desks, on the Capitol, on the House of Representatives, threatening the safety of duly elected officials. It's not protest. It's insurrection. Joe Biden this afternoon. Sydney in Atlanta, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Sydney. Hi, how are you? Okay, and you? Um, I'm 17 years old, and what I saw tonight, if what happened tonight doesn't show that there is racism in America, I don't know what else there is, because I'll never understand how, because I know the, you know, the Capitol is open to the public, but you have to go through security. There's metal detectors. I don't understand how it was able to get that bad. Like, that's stuff you see in third world countries. But all I can think about is if that was a Black Lives Matter protest, there would be black people dead all over the Capitol. And I will never understand that. And how Donald Trump just does not care. Like, if you read his tweet from earlier that Twitter made him delete, he, it literally just sounded like he was excusing it, the behavior, like he just didn't care. And I don't understand how you can do that. And I don't understand how anybody could support that. And he gives Republicans a bad rep because there are Republicans who don't support him. But those Republicans are getting mixed in with him. And... Me and my aunt were talking about this earlier about how, you know, the country might be divided into four parties, Republicans, progressives, Democrats, and nationalists, because those people who are up there tonight, those are not Republicans. Those are like terrorists. And I don't know, it just breaks my heart to see this. And then I know, like, there will be Republicans that will just, you know, find every excuse in the book for that to be okay. And I'll just never understand that. Sydney, thank you very much. Rich, she mentioned nationalism. Your book is The Case for Nationalism, 
Any second thoughts? These folks thought they were nationalists, patriots. Oh, well, no. I mean, a key tenet of nationalism, one, is democratic self-government. country belongs to the people, doesn't belong to a monarch or elite or an imperial center, and should be respect for the nation's institutions. And the, the counting of electoral votes that Congress was engaged in at the time they were disrupted by the, this mob goes back to the, you know, the very founding of the country. It's one of the oldest traditions in Congress. And the idea that a nationalist waving a Confederate flag, by the way, which is anti-nationalist by the nature of it, is going to go and disrupt that. That's sheer nihilism. It's anarchy. It's, uh, it's, it's nothing that should be recognized, in, in my view, as, tr- as an expression of true and legitimate American nationalism. Kai, any thoughts about that or the caller? Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is whether or not they understand nation to be uh, the the multiracial republic that um, I assume uh, Rich is thinking about or whether they understand nation to be definitionally white. And I think that it, you know, who knows, we can't interview all 30,000 people there. Um, they were fairly uniformly white uh, in their in visually. And we know from it's just a fact of Donald Trump's political career in public life before he was even in politics, he has centered a white nationalist understanding of the United States. And that has been a central, not a not a not a not a quirk of his politics, not a a feature of his administration has been the organizing idea of his presidency. And so the people who feel so strongly about it that they would storm the violently storm the capital at the idea that uh he w- has been removed uh one has to it, the the mass suggests that they understand the nation to be nationalism to be white nationalism and so this is what i mean about we have to get to a place where we can be honest about that where we can have those kinds of honest conversations we're never going to move forward unless we can be honest about just the degree to which white nationalism meaning understanding that America at its core is here for white people is at the core of a lot of American politics. And it's not a fringe idea in American politics and we have to address it. Well, Rich Larry, for hey, Brian, you as- Brian, can I just, uh, sure, can I just add Paige, one thing about, ahead. I just, I would just like to say what a smart political analyst I think Sydney is because she has really identified the strains that we're going to see in the next year and beyond in both parties between progressives and more establishment Democrats, that's definitely going to be something for the Democratic Party to be dealing with. And the, the, between the nationalists and the more traditional Republicans, uh, I mean, we're definitely seeing that on display with this debate over uh, over accepting the Electoral College uh, counts uh, tonight on the Hill between these two parties. You saw yesterday Mitt Romney, who was as recently as 2012, the Republican presidential nominee, being heckled as a traitor on the plane that he used, he was on the commercial flight he was on to come back uh, from Utah to D.C. yesterday. I don't know if you saw the cell phone video of that, but really quite extraordinary. Both parties are going to need to deal with these divisions, but man, I think that the GOP is in for a world of pain ahead in figuring out what it stands for once Trump is out of the White House. Daniela in San Jose, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Daniela. Hello, how are you? I mean, yeah, I know how we all are. (laughs) 
Right. Rhetorical question. Now what? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to call in, first of all, to echo Sarah's really powerful sentiment from earlier about the difference between how black and white um, protesters and rioters are treated, but also to say that I would love to see the Democratic leadership support um, Representative Cori Bush's proposal that she tweeted out she's drafting um, for there to be an investigation on whether the members of the House, the Republican members who ch wanted to challenge the election, have actually violated their oath of office to uphold the Constitution or the rules of the House by doing so um, and should be sanctioned or basically expelled um, for inciting this violence. You know, I, I read elsewhere that even when they were uh, being sheltering, like when they were sheltering in place with other um, representatives, they refused to wear masks. Um, without this kind of action, without actually seeing consequences for um, their antics, how are we supposed to move past this at all? Um, we cannot have Joe Biden's version of honesty without actual consequences for Donald Trump in the form of impeachment and for these Republican members of the House who think they can just waltz in and create chaos. Daniela, thank you. Kai, I wonder if there is a potential downside to that for the larger project of racial justice, like it would take people's eye off the ball too much of the real progress that this country needs to make in the ways that you've been laying out this hour if people are focused on consequences for members of Congress and members of the Trump administration. I mean, that's true, but it is also true that one of our problems in society is there's not enough consequences for this kind of stuff. And so I think, you know, uh, to Susan's point about the the, the thing that, that both parties are going to have to wrestle with, this is something that I think is going to be an immediate challenge for the Biden administration and Democrats is uh, how to deal with the significant numbers of people uh, who support Democrats, whether they be whether they identify as Democrats or not, who want to see some consequences uh, for things, for many things that have happened over the last four years um, and have a meaningful, substantive argument to make about like, well, if we don't hold if there are no consequences this will just these kinds of things just keep happening versus the equally meaningful substantial argument to be made that okay yeah but th that's not the agenda here is we need to fix we need to get stimulus out for uh, states for to deal with covid we need that there's a long list of of crises that need to be dealt with uh so i think that will be a a significant tension uh, amongst Democrats and on the left uh, in the in the coming months, and I'd be honest, I I don't have a, I, I think it's a hard answer question to answer. Mm -hmm. Rich Lowry, for you as the editor of a conservative magazine, but as someone who is no fan of Donald Trump and has been labeling him an extremist all this hour, um, what do you think these people who stormed the Capitol really want at a policy level, if they could even articulate it, or is it really simply about white identity? Well, I think, one, a lot of them probably aren't, aren't sure exactly what they want, but um, I guess as a line share of them, believe that democracy has been stolen from us, that Donald Trump won the election, and nasty political actors um, stole that and that Joe Biden is completely illegitimate, the process is completely illegitimate. And if you believe 
take literally the kind of things Donald Trump and people around him are saying, it would be a justification for a violent revolution. If it's really true that our country has been taken over by Iran and Venezuela manipulating our election machines so we no longer can govern ourselves, that, that is cause for radical action. So I think at a certain level, these, these people, they just, they just believe it. And they, they undertook uh, direct action to try to disrupt the process and, uh, shockingly, succeeded, at least for a number of hours. And I don't think the, the Capitol Police should have been gunning people down, but it's just shocking that they weren't better prepared to defend what is supposed to be one of the most secure buildings in the United States, the heart of American democracy. So I think there needs to be a, a lot of searching questions about that after the dust settles. Susan Page, a minute left in the show. How would you answer the same question? And where do we go next? What happens tomorrow? Well, I think tomorrow begins what is likely to be a long process of trying to examine what happened in terms of security uh, and also what has happened in terms of kind of faith in the process itself, in the democracy itself, in faith that this was, in fact, a free and fair election and that, that most Americans did, in fact, vote for Joe Biden for president. And, in fact, people ought to get behind him, whether they voted for him or not, when he's inaugurated on January 20th. I, I feel like this is a time of such – this has been at such – the past year was so terrible, and it prompted us to, I think, examine so many fundamental things, including racial justice, and all that is not over as we head into 2021, from, from racial justice to COVID-19. Susan Page from USA Today, Rich Lowry from National Review, Kai Wright from the United States of Anxiety. Thank you all so much. And thanks very much to everyone for listening this hour. I'm Brian Lehrer. From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. And this hour, we will talk about the extraordinary events of the last 24 hours. From the projected victories of the two Democrats in the Georgia Senate runoffs that would give Democrats control of the Senate, to the historic speech by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor endorsing the presidential election results as important to the future of democracy and calling it the most important speech he ever gave, to the storming of the United States Capitol by a group of Trump supporters that police categorized as a riot and Trump's former chief of staff, Reince Priebus, called domestic terrorism. And at this late hour, Congress, to show that they're not intimidated, is back in session. America, are we ready? Let's keep talking about the extraordinary events of the last 24 hours. I don't want to forget that almost lost in the unprecedented drama of people storming the U.S. Capitol in the name of Donald Trump is that two Democrats won the Georgia Senate runoffs, and that will give Democrats control of the Senate. And there was the historic speech by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor endorsing the presidential election results as important to the future of democracy. I'm looking at the New York Times website right now, folks, and you know how in the print edition there would occasionally, but only on rare occasion, be a headline that goes all the way across. Well, mob incited by Trump storms capital is the headline that goes all the way across. And they just say it, mob incited by Trump. That's the big banner headline on the New York Times website right now. And then you go down a little bit, and there's another big banner he uh, headline. 
When does this happen with two in a day? Democrats win Senate control with dual victories in Georgia. And the backlash to what Donald Trump incited, as the New York Times reports on its news pages, not just its editorial pages, includes their conservative columnist, one of them, Brett Stevens, having a new column up, headline, Impeach and Convict right now. Impeach and convict right now, even now. So let's start there. We will open up the phones for anything you want to say, because this is a national call-in show at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK, from left, right, or other. And joining us is David Graham, national politics reporter for The Atlantic. Hi, David. Thank you for giving us some time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. You agree with the New York Times headline, Mob Incited by Trump, Storm's Capital? I do. I mean, I, I think that we have to uh, assign the ultimate responsibility to Trump. He spent the last two months telling people that this was stolen, telling people there was massive fraud, telling them that democracy uh, was in the balance. Uh, and then that was all nonsense, but it was coming from the president. Uh, and if you believe what he said, um, you ought to know better, but if you believe that, um, you know, trying to do something about it is, is a, a, a patriotic and, and maybe even reasonable response. Beyond that, he, he specifically incited people on the mall today in his speech. Uh, this is the obvious consequence of, of that sort of incitement. Um, we, we see it happening and uh, we see who caused it. And for people who haven't seen this part of the story, he continued to do it. Joe Biden and a lot of Republicans called on the president to go on television or go on something and tell those people to go home while this was going on at the Capitol today. And he did release a Twitter video and then another tweet, but he seemed to excuse the violence as much as ask them to go home in peace by couching it in the context of the election was rigged, I won by a landslide, this was stolen, I get why you're so angry, you are special. And Twitter blocked his account. What do you make of that? Well, it's amazing. I mean, there was, there was no condemnation. He told them to go home, but he did not tell them they were doing the wrong thing. He didn't condemn what they've done. And again, as you said, he repeated all of the same incitements he's been offering for, uh, for two months and then uh, earlier today. Twitter blocking him is really remarkable. We've seen a lot of calls for Twitter to do something like that um, for years now and especially in the last year. And Twitter has really resisted. They've been willing to label tweets, but that's as far as they would go. Um, to, so to see him blocked for that kind of time is uh, is remarkable. And it's interesting because it cuts off his favorite channel for talking to people. It's almost like the president has gone mute, which is um, pretty rare uh, over the last five or six years. And they are back in session in the Capitol, we should say, the senators and the members of the House, almost in defiance of a mob of protesters coming back for a late night session to continue the debate and the ultimate seating of the electors in the presidential election. Um, but there's also, I don't know if we can call it bipartisanship or if we just call it standing down in the face of humiliation, but a number of Republican senators who are going to object allied with Trump to the seating of Biden's electors on these 
made up claims that 50 courts have rejected, uh, that something was unconstitutional about the way the election was held, uh, uh, four or five of them have changed their mind and decided not to object. What do you make of that? I do think they've been shamed by what happened. Um, it puts them in a difficult position to explain what they've done. If their concerns were so serious uh, that, that you know there was a constitutional crisis and we need to do something about it this morning, the fact that uh, a mob of running the Capitol could overwrite those concerns doesn't make a lot of sense. I think what this has done is sort of laid bare uh, the extent to which they were posturing and, and figured that this was a mostly harmless gesture. And now we've seen the harm. Uh, you know, I think it's for the better that they seem to be acknowledging that. Uh, we do still see them sort of using the forum to to voice these concerns they have about the process, but um, but uh, it does seem like they're backing off of any kind of formal request. They're, the the request for a pan, for, you know, some sort of inquiry seems to be gone, and, and they're just making their statements and then uh, moving on. With their tail between their legs, it sounds like. Um, we have a call <laughs> yes. on a Twitter angle. James in Richmond, California. James, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi there. Love the show. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah. Quick comment on Twitter um, is, uh, uh, and folks can confirm this independently, but um, it, it came to my attention. A friend uh, confirmed that Pence's personal account unfollowed Trump uh, shortly after being berated by Trump on Twitter. Um, so the vice president's uh, account, the, Vi the VP account is still linked to Trump, but Pence unfollowed Trump today officially on Twitter. James, thank um, you. Thank you very much. And David Graham from The Atlantic, A, can you confirm that? And B, let's tell everybody, because there are so many things that happened today that some of them might have gotten lost in the sauce for a lot of listeners. And this might be one of them for a lot of people, as big as it would otherwise be, that Mike Pence said that no, he is not going to do what Trump wanted him to do, which was assert that he has the unilateral power as vice president to delay the seating of the electors. Uh, and then, as the caller said, Trump berated him. It, it does not appear that he actually did unfollow. I'm, I'm, I wasn't familiar with that, but I'm just sort of checking around, and I'm not sure that's true. Um, although that is sort of the, the level of gesture that we've come to expect as a, an admonishment to Trump. Um, it really a, a must be a very strange day for Pence, who who uh, this morning seemed like he was going to be the person um, under the most scrutiny today um, as he had to sort of, uh, uh, you know, figure out how he could avoid angering Trump as much as he could while also following the Constitution, which really ought not perhaps to be that much of a dilemma. He's a little bit off the hook in this case. I mean, the, the, what had happened was so dramatic and that, that his decision is a little bit of an afterthought. He sort of reached for a statesman-like tone. Um, when the Senate came back into session around eight o'clock, um, you know, trying to sort of transcend that and, and emphasize fealty to the, the Constitution. I'll be curious to see how he balances the next few days, especially if there's continued concern, you know, talk about the, the prospect of a 25th Amendment invocation um, or any other, or, you know, mass resignations at the White House. 25th Amendment, meaning now might be the time when people actually stand up and say, even in the Republican ranks, Donald Trump is not just wrong on the issues. He's really lost his mind, and therefore he needs to be removed. That's the idea. And, and we are seeing some reporting from several outlets suggesting that there are discussions about this uh, at the cabinet level. There are no names attached to these stories, either as sources or members of the cabinet who are involved in it. Uh, and we've heard 
kind of rumbles about the 25th Amendment at times um, over the last four years. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in that really happening. Um, but those conversations do, I think, make Pence's position a little tenuous. He has to figure out how to uh, continue to uphold the rule of law and and also um, remain in the Trump administration as long as he remains in it. Also with us is Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer. Hi, Christina. Thank you for coming on on short notice. People don't know that we uh, grabbed you for this at the last minute, so we really appreciate it. And following events today, you must be exploding with about 100 things today uh, to say. What's at the top of your list? Well, I mean, today just feels like what America is. We started off celebrating our first Jewish-American senator from Georgia, our first Black-American senator from Georgia, the work of Stacey Abrams and so many organizations and Black women across the U.S. South. And the day moves on, and we have white supremacists storming the Capitol and putting their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, checking her mail, and watching people break glass and carry Confederate flags through one of the most sacred buildings uh, in our nation. Uh, And so I, I feel like that is, all of these things are America. Uh, And it's been difficult and frightening and frustrating uh, that so many people are saying this is not who we are. And it's like, well, I've got 400 years of receipts that beg to differ. Uh, And the fact that we have a president who's been aiding and abetting these individuals for quite some time, the fact that we've had a Republican Party that's been doing the president's bidding and now they're slowly trying to walk it back. Uh, But there's some real dangers uh, in this nation and how many people and families and communities feel unsafe watching police escort these domestic terrorists through the hollowed halls of Congress, uh, unscathed and unscarred. And we know that, you know, had they been black or Latinx or indigenous folks, uh, we would have had a very different scenario with tanks and much more tear gas and obviously not the polite conversations that we saw between law enforcement and domestic terrorists in the halls of Congress. I wonder what you think the takeaway from that could be. Could it be that this is a model for police to stand down more in the face of other protests? Um, And would that be a productive outcome, even as people would like to have seen this handled more aggressively? Well, we have to be honest, Brian, about the fact that, you know, our law enforcement has been infiltrated by white supremacists ever since that FBI report came out in 2010. We know law enforcement and corrections officers uh, and military personnel have been infiltrated by white nationalist organizations for quite some time. So once we review what has happened today, and that's going to take some time, we really do need to review where law enforcement stands, because there were far too many law enforcement individuals taking selfies with these domestic terrorists and treating them as though they were equals. Um, And we know for a fact, we know for a fact that that would not be the case if these protesters were black. They wouldn't have gotten anywhere near the Capitol. So yeah, I think an overall assessment should be done, but I think a larger conversation is how do we, and this is a conversation we've had, you know, on more local politics questions, but how do we get police officers to see black and Latinx people as human beings and citizens that that deserve dignity and respect? This is America. Are we ready? We'll continue in a minute. Calvin and Macon, Georgia. Hang on. You're up next. From WNYC in New York, this is special coverage, America, Are We Ready? 
after the dramatic events of the last 24 hours. We are with David Graham, politics reporter for The Atlantic, and Christina Greer, Fordham University political science professor. And look who walked back her decision to object to the seating of electors from her state of Georgia. It's the now defeated Senator Kelly Loeffler. When I arrived in Washington this morning, I fully intended to object to the certification of the electoral votes. However, the events that have transpired today have forced me to reconsider, and I cannot now in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. With her tail between her legs, that just happened a little while ago. A number of other Republican senators with their tails between their legs in similar ways. So that was a senator from Georgia. Here's Calvin in Macon, Georgia. Calvin, thank you for calling in. You're on America. Are we ready? Yes, we are ready. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, hey there. I don't, have, I don't have very much to say, but I've been following the events for the last four years of Donald Trump. I was interested to find out exactly what type of individual he really is. His classmates have anything nice to say about him. Um, his dad bought him, bought his way through school. But what's disturbing is the GOP has really let me down uh, to allow an individual to do what this man has done to this country is unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. Now, I've, I've read a lot of different books and things, but I do believe Donald Trump has read Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. He's following this book by the letter, gentlemen. Anyone that's of age 70 years or older know this. They should know this. And it's disturbing to allow an individual to do what he has done and continually do it with their eyes closed, enabling this man to do this? How, how, can, how, how, can, we, how can we go home and face our wives, their wives and children and, and family and constituents by allowing this man to do this? It's disturbing, gentlemen. It's quite disturbing. Calvin, let me ask you. The underground. Beyond... Yes. Donald Trump, how encouraged are you by the election called today of the two Democrats, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, from your state of Georgia and what that could mean for the nation? I have confidence in the, in the nation. I really do. I really do have confidence. I am I'm hopeful that we take our heads out of the sand and take a part in this government that we have in this country. Democracy is great. I served in different, I served military in different places. Democracy is great, folks. This is the best. It's the best thing going right now. The few Cal people that have gotten yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You can finish your thought. I apologize. There's only a few people that's not educated enough to know. Everyone of seven years or older has civics in school. Those books are gone now. Those books are gone. 
those books taught us how government run, our responsibility as, as, as citizens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we are now allowing those few people that really don't know how the government is run, what it's for, what we our stands in the world as far Calvin, thank you very much for your call. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your contribution. And Christina Greer, whether the president literally is following the playbook of Mein Kampf, he certainly was acting like an authoritarian to the end, or as close to the end, because the playbook would include, after you lose a democratic election, to incite a mob to try to overthrow the duly elected government. Indeed, Brian, but he's been tweeting that since November 4th when he refused to concede. So this question of, you know, are we going to see a coup? We've been in a coup since November 4th, the day after the election, when we did not have a peaceful transference of power, when it was incredibly clear that the Electoral College had delivered uh, the appropriate amount of uh, votes to Joe Biden, that the, the vast majority uh, of the popular vote went to Joe Biden. Uh, and Donald Trump said, no, I'm going to fight this tooth and nail and we're gonna fight it on the state level and we're gonna fight it in Congress when the Electoral College has to be certified and I want my supporters to stop the steal. And we saw people protesting in Arizona. We saw people protesting and harassing people in Michigan and Wisconsin and Nevada. We saw this all across the country and far too many Americans were just like, well, no, he's not serious. And no, he'll he'll do the right thing ultimately. When has this man ever done the right thing? We're New Yorkers, we know. We've seen what he did in New Jersey with casinos. We've seen how he's treated people in New York with real estate. We've seen how he's uh, performed when he didn't get his Emmy for The Apprentice. This is a man who cannot deal with defeat or public embarrassment. And this is a, a grand international public embarrassment. But what's more desperate for Donald Trump is that he is deathly afraid of becoming just a regular citizen at 2 p.m. on January 20th because there's a woman named Letitia James, who's the New York State Attorney General, and there's Cy Vance, who's the Manhattan DA, and they're looking at the crimes that he's committed, not just whilst being in office as the president, but before he even became president. And so Donald Trump did not plan on leaving office. He thought he could bully his Republican colleagues into making sure he could stay. But sadly, as I've said from day one, someone who does not read, who does not respect reading, who does not respect the legislative process, Donald Trump does not understand that he is not a king. He cannot just tell Mike Pence to give him the votes and to certify the election. And so as we see Republicans walking things back, slowly for some, swiftly for others, um, Ultimately, I do think that January 20th, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be uh, sworn in and they will be our 46th president and vice president. However, we know that Donald Trump will get even more desperate uh, as we get closer to that date. And he has consistently told his armed supporters that this is what they should do to protect him. We didn't hear anything from Republicans when they threatened to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of, of Michigan and also members of the state house and hold them hostage and possibly kill them until they got their way. We didn't hear anything from Republicans when that happened. So they have created this dragon and now they're trying to figure out how to tame it, how to put it back into the cave. And it may be too late, Brian. You know, I, I am hopeful that this country will find its way, but we are a bloodthirsty nation 
that is founded on white supremacy that Donald Trump has excavated and cultivated for the past four years and more so in the past two months. And it's going to take a lot of people to wake up very quickly and recognize all the things that black women in particular, but Democrats have been saying for the past four years and see that as a reality and not just histrionics of people who had a president that they didn't necessarily want uh, in, in 2016. And David Graham from The Atlantic, breaking news just now, another Republican suddenly running away from Donald Trump with his tail between his legs. Of all people, Lindsey Graham. Here's a quote from the Senate floor from just a little while ago. Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate to end it this way. Oh, my God, I hate it. But from my point of view, he's been a consequential consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see, all I can say is count me out. Enough is enough. David, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to track exactly what Graham is doing here. Um, We saw him, you know, calling the Secretary of State of Georgia just a few weeks ago uh, in this effort to pressure the state to change the results or throw out valid votes. Um, Now you hear him striking a statesman-like pose a little bit on the Senate floor. This is a little bit of his classic MO, which is he goes where there is power, and I think he, he understands that Joe Biden is going to be the president on January 20th, um, and he's going to have more power by starting to cozy up to that, just as he accrued some power by cozying up to Trump. Um, you know, One of the differences between him and, and somebody like a Josh Hawley is Lindsey Graham is not going to run for president. He doesn't have that concern, and so he, he doesn't uh, – he has different political pressures than, than sort of trying to please the Trump base, I think, and you see him catering to those different pressures. I think we just got that Lindsey Graham audio, as a matter of fact – here it is. If you're looking for a way to convince people there was no fraud, having a commission chosen by Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and John Roberts is not going to get you to where you want to go. <laughs> it ain't going to work. So it's not going to do any good. It's going to delay, and it gives credibility to a dark chapter of our history. That's why I'm not with you. But I will fight to my death for you. You're able to object. You're not doing anything wrong. Other people have objected. I just think it's a uniquely bad idea to delay this election. Uh, Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh, my God, I hate it. And really, David, he was playing both sides even there. He was. That's exactly right. You know, he's... um, uh, he, he's willing to, to sort of cater to it, and, and he's arguing that this doesn't have any harm when I think we've seen just today in very physical, material terms just what the harm can be of, um, uh, of you know, coddling these sorts of bogus complaints about the election. Devin in Atlanta, as we stay in Georgia for our next call. Devin, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Devin, are you there? Devin, what? Yes, Hi, Devin. Hi, Devin. We got gotcha. you. Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you on a speakerphone? Hey, can you pick up a handset? That would help your sound quality if you can. Yes, I can. Hello? And that's advice for all callers to all talk shows. Yeah, Devin, now we got you better. Hi. 
Hey, so uh, once again, um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so I think it's very important that we reference one of the statements that the president made uh, in regards to the Republican Party. He states, we are the party of law and order. And I just wanted to make reference to that quote, uh, particularly because being that law and order has long been one of the social institutions that has suppressed black and brown people. What, what are you really saying there? We really have to look at the, the underlying message in which he's trying to make and align himself and his party with, you know, justice. And, and we all know over the last four years and, and dating back, you know, hundreds of years that black and brown people have been suppressed by our legal system, by our justice department. And that's one of the things that our president-elect is going to have to do very, work very hard to undo um, with all of the racial injustice that we've had to endure over the years. Um, like I said, he's aligning himself with this social institution that has suppressed and incarcerated black and brown people. And, and the mere fact that, you know, we don't necessarily, I, I don't want to use the, the term terrorist, but maybe domestic terrorists or that's what these people were that were on the on the steps of the Capitol. Devin, thank you. And you know, you've got a lot of company at this point in using that term. Reince Priebus, Trump's original chief of staff, said tonight that many of those people were, guess what, domestic terrorists. Reince Priebus said that, for those of you who haven't heard that. Devin, thank you. We're getting a report, I think, from our next caller, Sam in Salt Lake City, who wants to tell us about something that's going on there, I think. Sam, you're on America. Are we ready? Thank you for calling in. Of course. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I was just disgusted watching everything go down uh, mid-afternoon today, so I escaped after a minute, and I live really close to the state capitol. And just like the Saturday after they called the election in November, you know, there was just a thousand or so Trump supporters out there waving their banners and having a field day. And it's just really pro problematic because only one side of this, I, I should say, you know, uh, it, it seems like the progressive, liberal, democratic side are kind of just exhausted. And a lot of Biden supporters, you know, you don't see thousands of Biden supporters out running parades with banners and flags and um, we're just not energized that way, or I should say liberals, Democrats, progressives aren't energized in that manner. Uh, and so when you have a big gathering of, you know, Trump supporters with their banners and their flags and their guns, and they're all reinforcing each other in that manner, they're not seeing the opposition. They're not seeing the, what, 70, 80 million people who voted Democratic in this past election. So uh, if you're a Trump supporter on the ground, it can definitely feel like you won because, uh all, all the people on the left are just exhausted. We don't want a civil war. Uh, but these people really do want a civil war. I, I went and spoke to a bunch of them that day. And uh, it's just hugely problematic. I'm not saying we should go out, or liberals, progressives, Democrats should go out in you know thousands deep and, and oppose these people. But it, it doesn't seem like until they meet 
force on the ground that can counter themselves physically, they will recognize that they're wrong. Uh, you, you know, you keep using the, the term tail between their legs, uh, to rep, you know, in reference to Loeffler and all these, all these GOP politicians. You know, Trump supporters don't have their tail between their legs. And very much, uh, they were very loud and proud at the Utah State Capitol this afternoon. And they weren't ashamed of what they were doing or what was happening at the, at the you know, the government capital in Washington, D.C. So that's all I wanted to say. I think as long as there's not there's not equal uh, show of force and equal representation, we're going to have issues. Sam, let me ask you a quick follow up question, because your state of Utah is a very conservative state in general on policy, yep. but not the biggest Trump state. And Mitt Romney, obviously, senator from Utah, mm-hmm. has been the loudest voice among Republicans saying, no, this is not normal before today. Absolutely. Is there something give, you could I mean, tell would, the rest of the Obama country? In 2012, I would love to vote for uh, Romney, you know, and, and I would I would get I would take a Romney any day these days. And, you know, our incoming governor, Republican governor, Spencer Cox, is actually a really reasonable guy. And I'm, I'm a very progressive person, but I'm, I'm glad that if we're going to have a Republican governor, uh, it's going to be him. In 30 seconds before we have to take our next break, what is it about Utah that separates it from some other conservative states, if you have a take on that? Fantastic question. I, I think that uh, Utah and Wyoming, they're more libertarian in nature. Uh, it's something about the LDS, Mormon culture especially. Uh, uh, it, it's not so, it, it's not religiously, zealously evangelical. It, it's very much like a libertarian, don't tread on me type of atmosphere. But again, there's a strong upswell of Trump support here that uh, it's very discouraging on the ground to see uh, that much enthusiasm, Sam. but nothing countered on the ground uh, in terms of Joe Biden's support. Sam, thanks for your report from Salt Lake City. It's America. Are we ready? We continue in a minute. This is America. Are we ready? Special coverage from WNYC in New York. I'm Brian Lehrer with Christina Greer, Fordham University political science professor, and David Graham, national political reporter for The Atlantic. We've made a few references to the speech on the Senate floor today by Mitch McConnell before the Trump supporters stormed the Capitol um, with their insurrection. And before it, he was drawing a line for people who think Mitch McConnell never, ever, ever had a bottom line when it comes to whatever abuses Donald Trump may be uh, pursuing. He had one today. I I want you to hear, if you haven't heard it already, uh, just a little bit of this. He did go on for, I don't know, about 10 minutes. We're we're just going to play a minute or so. Listen. I've served 36 years in the Senate. This will be the most important vote I've ever cast. President Trump claims the election was stolen. The assertions range from specific local allegations to constitutional arguments to sweeping conspiracy theories. I supported the president's right to use the legal system dozens of lawsuits, received hearings in courtrooms all across our country. But over and over, 
The courts rejected these claims, including all-star judges whom the president himself has nominated. Every election, we know, features some illegality and irregularity, and of course, that's unacceptable. I support strong state-led voting reforms. Last year's bizarre pandemic procedures must not become the new norm. But my colleagues, nothing before us proves illegality anywhere near the massive scale, the massive scale that would have tipped the entire election. And so Mitch McConnell, like you probably never heard him before, but before we get a reaction to that from our professionals, Mike in Chicago, who I think is not that moved. Mike, you're on America. Are we ready? Thank you for calling in. Thank you so very much, Brian. Yes, I think that we keep talking about Trump and we really should be talking about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell plowed the ground that made it fertile for for Donald Trump to plant his his poisonous seeds. Why is uh, why is Merrick Garland not on the Supreme Court today? Mitch McConnell, this would not have been possible. Donald Trump would not have been possible, but for Mitch McConnell. And now in five minutes, in 10 minutes, Mitch McConnell comes in and says, after 36 years, suddenly he's a human being. There are 50, by my count, you're far wiser and knowledgeable than I. By my count, there are 50 Republicans in the Senate. There are 49 Democrats and there's Bernie Sanders. 49 Republicans line up behind Mitch McConnell. 49 claiming to be patriotic Americans and not one of them has the guts to say, no, no, Mr. McConnell, you're wrong. We must have a vote on this impeachment. No, Mr. McConnell, you're wrong. We must have a vote on Merritt Garland. No, Mr. McConnell, it's time to stop. Mike, thank you very much. Yeah, witnesses for the impeachment was the issue there. And I guess it's 52, not 50 Republicans. But, Mike, we certainly take your points. David Graham, you want to go there? (laughs) Uh, You know, McConnell has... um has coddled Trump at, at, at nearly every stage. Um, and we've we've heard that he personally disapproves and he has differences of opinion and he, he has different ideological views. Um, it's interesting that this was the line. I mean, even before today, he said this was too far. He, he called this the most important vote um, that he would take. Um, you know, one way to read that is that uh, McConnell has been sort of shameless all along. Another is that there was simply a line he was unwilling to cross. I'm not sure that those are really in opposition, um, but clearly this was... This was a bright line for him. He he felt like this is too far, and that the election was um, was valid, and, and he wasn't going to tolerate this. But he wasn't able to keep until the violence today. He wasn't able to keep his caucus uh, in line behind him, which he usually is very able to do. So that tells us a lot about um, the state of the Republican Party in Congress. I think. Andrea in California. I'm not sure where in California. You want to tell us, Andrea? You're on America. Are you ready? Well, hi there, and um, I am so pleased to hear this discussion. It's just um, amazing, Brian. Thank you. And um, I, I don't, I don't have anything to say specifically about Mitch McConnell, but what I do uh, have to say is, 
Um, as somebody who is a black American um, and also a white American, I feel like I have a very you know particular. I have a black family and I have a white family, and um, there is no question to me that today's storming of the Capitol would have looked so different if it was black people, and we know that, and that is a slap, huge slap in the face for anyone with a heart. But I, I do think that we are discounting the entire of, entirety of the situation by making it into race. Um, I, as somebody who am able to see many sides of many coins, I, I see what I'm seeing here is people who are concerned that our democracy is at stake. And if we do not address those concerns, we are missing the point. If we make this about black and white, we're missing the point. We have to turn to these people. We have to find, why is it that they don't believe that we are legitimately where we are? Is it press? Is it Donald Trump? Is it, is it, you know, there's, there's a, it's half the country is divided. We cannot discount half the country. If we make it about a black and white issue, then we're not addressing their fears. And we have to go under the bed. When somebody says, when the kid comes out and says, Daddy, there's a monster in my bed, you go under, you go there and you say, a monster under the bed? Well, let's go check it out. And you say, well, it looks like there's no monster there. You go there with them. If you don't go there with them, then they're going to be scared forever. And it's not going to, there's going to be unrest and it's going to get worse. What would addressing their fears, what would addressing their fears, and I guess you're talking about people who support Donald Trump, look like at the governmental level, in your opinion? To me, um, what, I, what, what, what really has concerned me about the race issue and, and, and making it um, the main crux of the situation at this point, especially, is that most of so many of the Trump supporters, and I know because I have been, I, I know a lot of them, uh, strange, you know, for whatever reason, I, I, I've been a bit mostly blue my whole life, and I happen to know a lot of Trump supporters right now, and what they are, their complaints, their, their support of Trump is because they are pro-life, because they are Second Amendment, Amendment supporters, and they are single policy issues that brought them into the Trump camp, not because he is a white supremacist. And we all understand that complicity has to be addressed. And if you, if, if the complicity piece of this is can't be swept on the table, of course. But they are also, they are in Trump's camp because they are so sure they're, you know, my, I'm Jewish also, and like, I have family members who believe that they were just we our family was disarmed and that's why we we what happened happened that switzerland is neutral that and because you know and and they, they weren't overtaken because they they were armed legally had to be armed and they believe that so much that they're willing to support somebody who yes appears to be a racist and we have to like pull apart those pieces and listen to people. We are divided. We have to listen to the other half of the country and understand that he's supporting Trump because he is for the Second Amendment. Uh, Andrea, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your contribution. Christina Greer, what are you thinking? 
<laughs> well, I fundamentally disagree with Andrea. We can look under the bed. We've been looking under the bed for four years, 400 years, and it's not economic anxiety under the bed, Brian. It's white supremacy and anti-black racism. So everyone who can tell themselves that, you know, they're supporting what happened today because they support anti-choice. There are many people in this country who are anti-choice who didn't pick up AR-15s and knock out the windows of the Capitol and storm inside. The president himself has been inciting a particular faction of this country who believes that this nation is theirs. And we consistently have this, well, let's hear both sides argument conversation. And that's complicit. This is how we got to today by so many people saying, well, no, they're not really white supremacists and they're not really, you know, against immigrants or black people or Muslims or you can go down the incredibly long list that Donald Trump has has provided for his supporters. And you can ask yourself, this isn't about uh, economic anxiety. There were no signs about economic anxiety. There were signs that were saying, this is our country. This is for us. And it's, it's not even coded language anymore. If you look at Donald Trump's tweets, if you look at what his supporters have been actively saying, we need another civil war to take this country. Those Confederate flags were there for a reason. Those swastika flags were there for a reason. Those Trump flags, they are all, in their minds, the same flag. They represent something that is very real to them, and that is whiteness, we, and that is white superiority of this country. We had a guest earlier who was saying, but don't think those white supremacists who stormed the Capitol represent most of the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump. What would you say to that? Well, I think the time to sort of start picking apart how you support someone who's given you four years of a consistent message, I think you can tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself to pull that, that lever for Donald Trump, but do know that you were ignoring a very significant portion of who he is, what he represents, and what he wants to push forward as an agenda. So you can tell yourself it's about the tax breaks. You can tell yourself it's because you're worried about immigration. You can tell yourself that it's because you're anti-choice. But also know that in pulling that lever for Donald Trump, you are also saying, and I do support children in cages, and I do support the fact that he says that Muslims don't belong here, and I do think that Black Lives Matter uh, supporters are thugs. I do, you know, you go down the list. You can't just pick and choose. Donald Trump has been very consistent about what he believes and who he believes is worthy of being an American citizen, who he believes is worthy of being in this country, and who he believes is worthy of, of taking up the mantle as an American. So uh, the mental gymnastics that so many of his supporters put themselves through is exhausting. And we see time and time again their bad behavior when it comes to threatening sitting members of Congress or state houses or governors or how they treat women, right? This isn't just a one-off event here and there. This has been a consistent pattern over four years instigated by the president. So however you sleep at night, sure, that's on you. But know for a fact that we have history that has shown us what happens when people turn a blind eye to someone who is very consistent about his message of division and white superiority. We now have the results of the first vote in the Senate and the House on the first state to have its electors challenged, and that is Arizona, because they go alphabetically. And I'm going to give you those results in a second. 
The one from the house may or may not surprise you. First, here's a little sound of one of the senators leading up to this. It's Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey. My colleague from Texas said that this was a moment where there were unprecedented allegations of voter fraud. Yes, that is true. They were unprecedented when the president, before the election even happened, said, if I lose this election, then the election was rigged. That's unprecedented. It's unprecedented before the night of the voting, even the counting of the vote was even done, that he called it rigged. And it's unprecedented that he's fanning the flames of conspiracy theory to create a smokescreen in this nation to cover what he is trying to do, which is undermine our democratic principles. But it's not just that. The shame of this day is it's being aided and abetted by good Americans who are falling prey, who are choosing Trump over truth. And the colleague from Texas, who Senator Booker was referring to, is Republican Senator Ted Cruz, who introduced the resolution to not seat the electors from Arizona because of allegations of fraud that he wants further investigated. Booker saying there that the only reason a lot of people believe it is because the president made it up and got a lot of people to believe it. So David Graham from The Atlantic, um, I am seeing the Senate resoundingly rejected that challenge to Biden's electors from Arizona. But in the House, 94 Republicans still voted to object. Surprised? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big drop off from the estimates of 140 to 150 that we were expecting coming into today. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's disappointing for all the reasons we've, we've said. You know, this is a, a little bit of a reflection of where the, the Republican Party is in Congress. It's a reflection of the fact that many of these people are in districts where they're more concerned about a primary challenge than they are um, about, you know, how other voters might disapprove. Um, and I think we have the, many true believers. You know, we've got QAnon followers in Congress at this point. These are people who, um, you know, unlike some of the more cynical uh, members we've seen, um, who know that these fraud claims are, are bogus and are espousing them for you know, electoral gain in the future. Some of these people seem to truly believe it, um, which is disturbing and, and I think also explains why, um, despite what happened today, um, they are uh, eager to continue their challenges. And by the way, I guess they're still recording their votes, so it's now up to 115 Republicans <laughs> who objected. Christina Greer, you'll get our last word in 30 seconds. My goodness, after the last 24 hours, what happens in the next 24 hours? I don't know. I'm going to keep it in prayer. Uh, I, I do hope that we still get to celebrate the victories of, of Ossoff and Warnock and their historic uh, turn to Congress and, 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 and sort of the celebration of Stacey Abrams and her hard work. Uh, but I really do think that this falls on uh, Mike Pence to do the right thing and Republican senators and members of the House uh, to, to really rein in this president who's erratic and desperate at this moment. Christina Greer, political science professor at Fordham University and politics editor for The Grio. She also co-hosts a New York City politics podcast called FAQ NYC. And David Graham, national politics reporter for The Atlantic. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. 
And that's America, Are We Ready? Thanks very much for listening. I invite you to tune in for my daily live call-in Brian Lehrer show at WNYC.org, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time, so I'll be on short turnaround, or subscribe to my national politics podcast called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Thanks again to all our guests and callers and listeners for your time. Good night.